0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to She Leads Her Life podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Schneider, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Keeley Reese back with us today. She has been on a couple of episodes on She Leads Her Life podcast before, and she is back to share her wisdom and her expertise with with our listeners. And so today, I just wanna welcome Dr. Reese. And Dr. Reese, could you share just a little bit of about yourself, where you're from, and where you're at right now. For our listeners that have not heard you on before,
1: absolutely. Um, glad to be back, Jenna. And this is um, so timely, and I'm so honored. This, um, I am a professor of uh, health education and health promotion at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. I've been here for 17 years. Um, I'm originally from South Dakota, and um, came to Wisconsin via the St. Louis area, Um, lived in New Mexico before that, lived in Minnesota, Um, so um, that's been where my work has been. Um, I've been working in public health and health education for over 20 years now. Um, I started my career um, as an exercise physiologist and health behaviorist um, with nutrition and changing health behavior. And my background in public health is really out in New Mexico and working with um, uh, a variety of populations. Um, And I work, a lot of my work is centered around adolescent health um, and maternal and child health. And so I've been working this last year a lot around um, sexuality education and working with sexuality educators, public health educators that are working in sexuality education, Um, and especially during a pandemic. a little bit of shifting our work in public health to really help the public understand who we are what we do in a different way than maybe they did prior to this most recent pandemic we've had many pandemics um, that public health has lived through but nothing as the magnitude of this in this last um, century so we're Uh, Definitely have our work cut out for us. So I'm a mom as well. I have teenagers going through this as well, and I have a partner that's working through um, a pandemic as well. He actually works on the front lines of uh, COVID, and so um, it's we're kind of we live it and breathe it at our house. I have I have kids that are going to school 100% virtually, um, whether on a college campus or um, I have a high school daughter that has been. Of course navigating these waters um this whole last nine months and has not stepped foot in a school building since March 15th. So um glad to be back and excited to have this conversation with you Jenna and you've mm. been doing such great work on this throughout the whole um fall and summer as well and it's just really good.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to have you back as well and many of you listeners know my um, love and affection for you. So thank you again for being here. Let's talk about public health for a minute. Let's just kick that off. Now, I have a background, an undergraduate degree in health education and a master's in public health. I had the honor of having Dr. Reese as a professor and mentor. Now, we were talking a little bit before we started recording this podcast, but there was a perception of public health I like to think Mm pre-pandemic. And now, as we are many, many, many months in to this pandemic, how do you think the view of public health officials has developed over the last Mm -hmm. several months?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really um, fascinating question and something that I've been really um, sitting with um, on my campus, with my own students, uh, with my professional colleagues across our nation, I'm I serve on a couple of national boards. I'm right now I'm the National eta Sigma Gamma president, um, so helping chapters um, for it's a health. Uh, professional organization for our public health students across the nation so they sit on a campus and then they have a professional sort of organization to be a member of at the graduate and undergraduate level and it's the first place for them to try on their skills and in this it's been really interesting to hear from students across the nation so we have chapters in Florida Texas Arizona Alaska like you name it and it's really um And and we have colleagues in those places as well. And so it's really fascinating that you ask this question because at this time, um, if you were to do this snapshot, right, a prevalence point of what is the public perception of public health? um, And then prior to the pandemic, what did people even know about public health? And I always, always lead off with um, whether you're explaining it to, and I always teach classes that help students be able to tell their parents what it is they're going to do in their career, and um, the foundations classes, whether they're in our graduate program or our undergrad public health program. Oh my program. gosh,
0: I'm having a flashback. <laughs> no, right, Wait, right, you remember
1: no. this. Yep. And I always tell them you're in the, in the field of Um, helping change behavior. Really, public health is about behavior change at the core. It's about helping the greater good of the public. So in health education and public health, we really work with people at an individual level, or we work with people on group levels. And And public health, we care about the public, meaning the entirety of a community, the entirety of a county, the entirety of a state or a nation or a globe. And so our job is to make sure that we're, our whole job in public health is to reduce morbidity and mortality, death and disease for the public. The individuals um, at that level, we have to care about individuals, but again, we're, we're about putting together policies, procedures, and practices that prevent mass amounts of people from dying or having disability or disease and um, improving quality of life for the public. And then within that, giving people individual skills, empowerment, Um, competencies, their own, helping people find their own path to health and wellness. And so within public health, we train people who are going to be observing the public health from a very big 10,000 foot view. How do we protect 10,000 people, 10 million people, or we have public health people who are working on a very macro or a micro level, one-on-one with people, coaches, trainers, Wellness um, individuals, nutritionists. Um, we have people doing the one-on-one that help the individual mm-hmm. that are part of this bigger public. And we have students out there in the nation, um, in the public health workforce, that are doing um, one of those or both of those. And when you take a step back, remembering that public health was there for the public. So when we incorporate a new policy like wearing seat belts, It helps the individual life be saved by wearing that seatbelt. However, it also protects the mass numbers, the sheer numbers of people that die or become disabled due to motor vehicle um, incidences. And so we want to protect the most amount of people that we can. And that's the role of public health. And before pandemics, um, like the magnitude of this uh, coronavirus, we are kind of, always training people um, to be in this workforce and we're the unheard, unseen worker bees that are um, creating policies that the average public doesn't even know that they exist to protect the water that they drink, the air that they breathe, the cars that they drive, um, and everything in between. Um, the food, the the food sources, the um, all the way to-
0: out to the yeah, point. yes exactly mm-hmm.
1: screenings yeah. so the preventive level the the secondary screenings to the tertiary care and we have public health people that obviously work in treatment and um, all sorts of treatment of whatever disease and disability we're looking at um, but so we've always been as a profession this sort of quiet behind the scenes lay low do the work the public really only hears about us if something really goes awry, and there's a water epidemic, or a um, an outbreak of something, or a a lack of something. And again, we we take those hits when those bigger things kind of happen in in communities. Or and again, a lot of times those just happen in small pockets, like there's a like Flint, Michigan, and water, or if we're talking about um, an outbreak of smallpox in certain parts of the globe, or You're talking about maybe access to um, maybe there's a, uh, you know, water situation that's like groundwater and many places in Wisconsin are dealing with that. Right. But we are also then in that community, we just kind of deal with that. Handle that, um, work with the other officials to help alleviate that problem, and we pull in the other experts that are going to help us with water facilitation treatment and, and then reinspect and go on and forth and then usually life moves on and then again there might be an outbreak or there I was using this example with my class um, a little bit ago about uh, so there's all these people that prior to the pandemic that would raise these rats, right? And these rats are this big thing, and these mice, and these rats, and, and teens, and young people, and it kind of took off and just a few years ago, and especially in our state. In our state, we kind of had these pockets where there were these ratteries, right? These, these places in sort of rural Wisconsin where all of a sudden public health, People were very involved going in and doing home inspections because people were raising these rats. And and until anyone knew about it, people are like, What? And who takes care of it? Public health inspection and so on and so forth. And so it's sometimes we hit the news and there's an outbreak of something like that. And then it's like, all right, we come in, we fix it, it's kinda of gone. Well, The difference with this is that we're in month now nine and a half of um, what has been a relentless um, virus and it knows no difference between age or um, socioeconomic status or race or doesn't care. And like many health things, um, viruses or bacteria or water or air It doesn't care about your politics. It doesn't care about your, um, you know, living situation or your, it just doesn't discriminate. The virus can't discriminate. And so, what does discriminate are the policies around it and that keep people from having access to the public health, to the healthcare, to the whatever it is. And so, the pandemic has really shined um, a very bright light um, on public health and, depending on what state people live in, um, depending on what kind of politics happen in that state Um, prior to the pandemic. um, It also depends on the infrastructure of the state of their Division of uh, Public Health and Health and Human Services. Um, So pockets around the United States have just had glorious moments of public health, public health heroes, public health rising to the occasion and getting the support, funding, um, and hiring ability to do the work that really needed to be done and whether that's um, and there's some really good states that have been and been able to do that. And then there's other states that did not have that support, um, possibly at the governor level that trickles down to how those resources are allocated. And so public health um, folks are really blamed in a lot of ways for the lack of testing or the lack of now it'll, it'll, it'll slide from testing into vaccine um, availability and administering. And mm-hmm. so right now we're seeing, and we have for the last six months, we've seen um, the vitriol um, and the hate And the very hurtful things that people in communities have done to health department individuals directors um, and then any of the frontline health educators who have been running the messaging for these county health seats and these health departments and we've really watched um, our colleagues and our um, my alumni um, my my dear friends, and whether we're at universities or health departments or divisions of public health, it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. sort of uh, corporate health. I have mm-hmm. folks that are dealing with us in corporate settings. Um, they really take the brunt of it, and the amount of hate mail, um, real real vicious um, attacks in media, social media, newspaper outlets, um, and of course then the underbelly of social media. Um, the kind of things that really pit people against each other um, and make it very divisive. So so our, our,
0: yeah. yeah, I'm so glad you said that Dr. Reese, because I worked at the Wisconsin health department for over five years now and left just about 18 months ago and still of my very close friends are public health officials um, and educators over at the health department, and they are intelligent, smart, hardworking. Many of them are putting in 50 hours a week right now, and I just know that because I know them on a personal level and we're still checking in with each other and whatnot. They are in a very difficult position. um, And just know they are doing their absolute best, and they are working their butts off for our communities.
1: We have, um, I have alumni in so many parts of Wisconsin, but also in Minnesota, Iowa, and Illinois across the place. And when I hear a lot of them have wrote in, we've, we've started collecting some data and some of our alumni, we've started asking the question of what they're sort of experiencing. And one of the things that's really hard to hear is just the sheer number of hours. Like I had one alumni that had not had a single day off, not one day off since, um, this, the, since the pandemic started, this was like in November and finally had had a day, one day and is a mother of small children at home that are virtual schooling that are you know and and so that's been a really big challenge to just hear how um, you know or' on the opposite end where um, their jobs have been threatened because mm-hmm. individuals um, in that county have said that's it. We're, we're bringing in other people. Um, public health people have been circumvented. Mm-hmm. They have been um, they have been taken down to the level of you are not allowed to do this anymore. We're going to take mm-hmm. your dashboard, and now maybe a healthcare system is going to take over the dashboard. Or we've had um, I've had public health colleagues on campuses. Um, This is in another uh, state and they're in very good, strong leadership positions in those campuses and their leadership positions have been threatened if they don't step off or Mm -hmm. basically step down from their position and remove themselves from the pandemic team because you're being too loud. Um, It makes Mm -hmm. me think of the Taylor Swift song, right? You're being too loud. Um, Yes. And many, and many, many, Um, And Jenna, you know this very, very well. Many of our leaders in these positions are women. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And many of these women are um, facing these positions of, um, it it comes down to politics and Mm -hmm. power and you're being too loud. Mm -hmm. Step down, step Mm -hmm. back, step. Can you quiet it down a little bit? Mm -hmm. Maybe change the messaging. Um, We've heard stories over and over again Mm -hmm. about, um, anecdotal stories, uh, about what they're having to deal with and their, um, districts in their, Mm -hmm. um, campuses. This has been some campus stuff. And then of course, in their departments of public health in their counties, some really rural counties that are struggling with it and there's politics involved. Um,
0: Oh, that just makes the hair on my arm stand up because on a side note, I've been there, you know, too loud, too much. Um, And I can relate that with that as a woman, as being in public health at the heart health department under certain administrations, and we'd be working really, really hard on certain grant developments. And then all of a sudden, we would get to completion, and we would find out that our grant was not accepted, not because of the work that was done, not because of the research that was put Mm -hmm. into it, but it was because that public health stance was going against a funder of that certain party and so there is so much behind the scenes work that is done and so that I mean it is it is the real life of what people are going through and not only that I think two friends of mine that are epidemiologists right now and data scientists and they are some of the most detail oriented people that I know that actually aren't as don't have as much of the emotional love personality that they have. They are, they are put their head down and work and put that data out there. And now all of a sudden after years and years and years of being commended in the work that they've done are now being questioned when they are simply relating the data out to the public and exactly. how hard that is mentally, emotionally, emotionally, For them to keep showing up on a day-to-day basis, which goes right into the next topic that I wanted to talk about and do a little bit of shift, is I would love for you to share with our listeners what, I know you've been doing quite a bit of work lately on compassion fatigue, Mm -hmm. and if you could just let our listeners know what is compassion fatigue and how does that relate to public health officials, people that are on the front lines, and even parents that are home full-time with their children.
1: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Um, And this has been such an area of interest of mine for years before even the pandemic hit and burnout and studying burnout in leaders, studying burnout in educators, um, public health educators. so this is something that resides really close to home for me prior to the pandemic. And then it's just like this wave of now, this has been my life during the pandemic is really helping people out of this um, individually, organizationally, helping organizations understand what happens when their leaders or their workers, their, their workforce is experiencing this and what happens to our, our organizations and, um, and what's happening in our schools as an example. And so bottom line, compassion fatigue is this residual um, exposure to work um, with those that are experiencing sort of suffering and traumatic events. So uh, compassion fatigue can come by a secondary nature. So just our public health workforce that is working with the public, that is diagnosed with covid um, um, so, like, if I think about healthcare workers, they're seeing constant barrage of patients and clients coming in with it. It's compassion fatigue is this, um, it's, it's a cumulative process of burnout, but it's this secondary, um, uh, where you're witnessing the secondary trauma. It can occur due to exposures of uh, one case or accumulation of trauma. So what we've experienced now is accumulation of nine months of this um, pandemic. And so individuals that are teaching, healthcare workers, um, public health officials, directors that are managing their departments through this, and they're having to constantly do triage, they're having to do um, redesign workforce development, they're having to figure out what is our um they're actually literally having to reprioritize um, uh, their their strategic plan for their organization because of the pandemic. And so what happens is this over time, over time, over time, being consistently exposed to the trauma, the negative experience, um, we hear this story told with such intensity, right? We hear the stories, we hear the media, we see the news, Um so it's, it's when we experience their fears their, um and, and we and basically what happens, and this is a b- born out of Figley's research that started in the nineties um, and all the way into the two thousands prior to the pandemic. But he really says, this is when we tire, we aren't sick, but we aren't ourselves. And so deeply on a deep, deep, deep level, compassion fatigue looks like um, emotional exhaustion, it looks like mental exhaustion, decreased in um, the, the feeling of wanting to decrease your interactions with others. So it can look like isolation. Um, it looks like depersonalization, where you sort of disconnect from the real causes. Um, and then, of course, physical exhaustion um, to the nth degree. Um, it typically also looks like checking out. Um it looks like diminishing or minimizing your own suffering. So, if a person or an organization is experiencing compassion fatigue, it looks like the organization saying, Well, at least we're still here. We still have jobs. It's better than over here, but not addressing that that organization is really dysfunctional or it's not happening well. Or that if it was a personal person experiencing compassion fatigue, it's that hopelessness, helpless, powerless. Um, and it looks very much like you're kind of a, a survivor and a co-survivor. And so it's, it's, it's intense. It's very, um, here I will, I will share some of the, uh, quotes, some of my, um, uh, some of my clients and patients and, and some of the actual, the teachers that I've been working with, they have said they have said, I feel like I couldn't even breathe. I felt like the work was totally demanding. I always felt behind and that I wasn't doing enough at home. I felt like I couldn't be the kind of kind of parent that I should be. And I felt like I was falling apart at the seams. These are the, these are the kinds of how they would describe compassion fatigue for themselves. Um, and yeah. so it, it, it's exhausting.
0: This hits close to home. I have a close family member that is a respiratory therapist here in Madison. And what she is experiencing is next level. It's hard to even imagine. Um, she's gone from being a respiratory therapist, working with, she works often in the NICU with newborns. And she loved her job and still loves her job, but it's gone from that to being one of the last people that people see because they are not allowed to see their family members before they pass. And so carrying the trauma of carrying that person's emotions and carrying them through that process yeah. It's not something that she has had to handle before, nor is trained to be yep. able to carry the weight of the trauma that she is experiencing. Yep. Um and so hearing her stories, this is this has changed her forever, forevermore. And what we need to talk from a public health, you know, standpoint is how are we going to help these people? This pandemic, there is light at the end of the tunnel and this will eventually, you know, end in some capacity. But how are we going to gather together to then help these people that have gone through extreme trauma, um, just doing their jobs during the pandemic?
1: Yep. And that is exactly where we're at is helping the frontline, um, people, um, so our public health people that are on the front lines our healthcare workers our teachers our any and really it it crosses all sector because it goes to private companies it goes to the it goes to the grocery store workers who have been doing this and behaving this way for months after months it's store owners that have been trying to keep their storefronts open um to not go under and lose their stores um their their businesses um uh, whether that is a towing company, whether that is a um, a general store, whether that is a clothing store, it, it doesn't matter, and it crosses no boundaries. And so the individuals um, that are experiencing compassion fatigue are, um, and I, I think one of the things we do in public health too is we really prioritize and we learn really well how to understand. Like our our high priority right now is absolutely the healthcare workers who have been on the front lines. Um, the respiratory therapists the um the er docs the the nurses i have um i have a a ton of students in my graduate program for healthcare administration that um work in long term care facilities Our, our nursing home staff nurses uh, directors they they are they don't even feel like their eyeballs are above water anymore they are you know just to the point of sheer exhaustion so um, all the way to the the parents that are homeschooling and navigating their day job while doing that. The, mm-hmm. So compassion fatigue does not um, hit any one sector. Um, and then in fact, I would say we're probably um, nations of humans experiencing compassion fatigue at the highest. And so it, it's I always describe compassion fatigue as sort of like burnout. Mm-hmm. On steroids, um, like all the research um, about burnout
0: mm-hmm.
1: has been there for decades. Burnout in in athlete, burnout in coaching, burnout in mm-hmm. any field has studied burnout in corporate le- in corporate world. Um, compassion fatigue is like the one next level of now we're watching all that secondary trauma, that secondary trauma, and we might not see it ourselves or like I have not experienced COVID myself. Um, but watching everyone else around me have it, right? That's the secondary piece of it. Um, Or if those that are working in um, therapy or substance abuse or any of the other worlds that are watching their patients experience Mm -hmm. it. And, and so what do we do about it? We, we start, um, you know, and that's, in public health, we always think about the mass, right? We think about how do we help the most healthcare workers, the most teachers, the most. But then also in public health, we have individuals like you who are providing coaching. We have therapists who are doing the. I mean, our our therapists are also experiencing compassion fatigue because Absolutely. they are having to do this level too. Um, so it's what I call help the helper. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to have find tools, resources, materials, um, trainings, um, education spaces, um, and help people help themselves because right now it is, um, nobody else can help anyone else out of compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is not where you can do a blanket program and, um, um, there's not really a Modality, other than helping those individuals see that they are in compassion fatigue and then help them see a path out. Mm-hmm. And really it's about helping them find their own path out. Cause there's a lot of paths out of compassion fatigue that are not, it's not a one um, fix all for every person. And the way that one person will get out of it will be great. But the other person next to that, that, and so it goes back to my concept of um, helping everyone figure out um, what are the tools and what are the skills that they need to climb out. And so where one person, a bubble bath will be restorative and helpful, others, that's not even going to touch the surface of it.
0: Absolutely. Where
1: another person, therapy will be the route. The other person, is that is not the way that they're going to get out of compassion. Fatigue. They're going to need movement, or they're going to need um, support group, or they're going to need a week off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They need deep restorative um, services, spaces that people can go to retreat centers. Um, Organizations are going to have to fundamentally find ways to help their employees come out of this, and leaders are doing that. Um, Really good leaders are doing that Mm -hmm. in, in corporations and hospitals and.
0: I always like to share with the clients that I coach when some of them come to me and say, okay, what, what do I need to do? What's the fix it? Right. And I always say, you know, it, it's like going to an eye doctor, right? Yep. The eye doctor is going to give every single person a different prescription depending on what you need, right. To see clearly, but not there's not one prescription that fits all people to see clearly. And so that's so so important but also just having this conversation is so imperative to the healing that is going to have to take place in our country as a whole mm-hmm. and you know being vulnerable enough to say I'm not okay and I need help and I need resources and you know, reaching out to others that you may think are struggling to see, how can you help them? This is just breaking down all the boundaries and pointing the light on um, the importance of mental health and getting the help, the accurate help that people need, but also just not being fearful for reaching out and being vulnerable enough to say, I need help.
1: And the vulnerability piece is key, um, having um, the conversation at every level within an organization. Um, and, and usually it's your, it's your employees and your colleagues and your friends that um, uh, are, they on the outside look like everything is fine. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the three words I talk about in every one of my workshops and trainings, it, I am fine. I am fine is the biggest farce in the human language um, because it usually means they're probably the people that need it the most. Um, and, they, and and usually people deep in compassion fatigue actually don't even know they're in it. Um, burnout, usually people feel burnout and know the signs. They can, the, they feel the symptoms. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, when people get to the past, the point of burnout and they're in compassion fatigue, um, a lot of times they can't even see it, they're so far deep in. So a lot of times it's family members, it's colleagues, it's their therapist. It's someone that says, "Stop." And um, and/or and a lot of times deep in compassion fatigue, this is when people do have a mental breakdown. They have a physical breakdown. Mm-hmm. exhaustion. This is when we will see people end up in an ER situation. Um, and then they do all the testing and nobody can figure out there's nothing that's coming up wrong with them. And then finally the the doctor says, yeah, this is, you're in compassion fatigue. You have hit burnout mm-hmm. squared. And what happens is um, right now we're seeing, uh, in a lot of the spaces I work right now too, just in La Crosse and just my own Um, you know, boards and things that I'm doing in lacrosse and and, um, organizations that we work with um, in our department. Um, This is what exasperates um, our system in terms of uh, mental health. So this starts to look like severe depression. This starts Mm -hmm. to look like anxiety. This starts to look like substance abuse. This starts to look like um, really um, behaviors that um again the the people themselves don't even sometimes see that they're doing, mm-hmm. and it takes like almost an intervention of their family, their mm-hmm. therapist, their whoever to say um you're you're going to implode um and we've seen that happening all over the country mm-hmm. where people just break down and they can't do it, they cannot go on any longer and the mm-hmm. nicu the um frontline people the um the i mean teachers are experiencing this they are they are beyond the capability of virtual, go back in person, go back to virtual, go back to, you know, they're just, and then they're, they're experiencing secondary trauma watching their students who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, are, I think I, besides healthcare workers and our public health workforce, I think our, our educators are probably the next level that I'm on watching. I'm really the most mm-hmm. concerned about um, mm-hmm. they're kind of the secondary behind the scenes but mm. and, as compared to our frontline folks that are in um people's homes and uh-huh. in people's um hospitals but
0: absolutely yeah so okay, the conversation so this is, and this is 2020 we are I, I don't know about you but i am excited to close 2020 <laughs> and move on to 2021 now neither of us know what 2021 is going to look like but if you had to make an educated guess of what 2021 is going to look like with the vaccine coming out, um, with the possibility of herd immunity by the end of 2021, if that is still a possibility, I would love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. And what can we kind of shift our mind to looking ahead to 2021?
1: Absolutely. Well, we are um, very excited about the rollout of um, the two vaccines in the United States. And then there will be a third and a fourth um, uh, that will be coming out very soon here, too. And so the, the first one, the rollout, we knew that would be exciting and it would hit and people would be, um, you know, and it would get in the hands of, you know, and that's, the, that's the part we're in right now. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines are being rolled out as of last week um, and hitting every pocket of every state and just the quantities. And of course, you know, the triage of figuring out, um, who is getting access to these, of course, at first. And, uh, and of course as public health, um, officials, we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of, um, making sure that we're not setting up policies that are disenfranchising individuals even more in that process. So, um, and of course it's, it becomes that like, uh, who has access, who yeah, had access prior to it, who doesn't have access. access. And yep. So it, it will continue to create this very divisiveness and fear mongering and very, um, um, it's sort of, it's this, like, there is this scarcity mentality right now because there isn't enough and it's being rolled out and it's being rolled out slowly. Um, But trusting the process and trusting the, Um, process of how it's being rolled out to triage to get it in the hands of the most frontline and then the next frontline, the next frontline, the next frontline. And then, you know, so we know that's going to take months and as each, um, Uh, vaccine is brought to the forefront and we'll have a third and then we'll have a fourth very soon within the next um, four to six weeks, Um, it will just get better and better and better. And so we will have this process. And I'm just speaking in our nation. I mean, if you look globally, we can already watch what's been happening just a little bit ahead of us in the UK and in other um, European countries and watch how that happened. You can watch the politics about it. You can watch Mm -hmm. the you know, and then there's just a lot of like, um, you know, hearing the backlash at the end so we can learn. So we're watching, observing, mm-hmm. and we can learn mm-hmm. just as we have been doing for nine months of this with the virus. Um, so I'm very hopeful um, for, well, and I I love that 2020 is ending as well, just because I love closure to things, but I'm also the person that is saying, oh my gosh, so many good things have also come out of 2020 that we have to hold on to those things as well. We've learned mm-hmm. how to streamline. We've learned how to do things with less. We've learned how to do things with more. We've lo- we've shown um, the world, the spotlight of where the systematic uh, racism falls and that we have so much work to do and that it's just the beginning. And so I'm very excited because it does bring renewal. And no matter what, I love the end of the year and and the new year and whatever, but I also love history and love the historical, like, here's what we've learned in a year. Here's what we've accomplished in 2020. Mm -hmm. Here's what was crap, but here's what we've done as a family, as a community, as a state, as a nation. And that's what gives me goosebumps. And to think about what we have single-handedly done with a vaccine that could have never been done in 1950, in Mm -hmm. 1940, in in 1918. Mm -hmm. um, And where we have come in a hundred years to understand how to, um, and then our government being able to roll out and make sure that we had a process to get an expedited Mm -hmm. vaccine and Mm -hmm. still have validity and reliability Mm -hmm. and um, safety built in it as well it was and 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 then it's us in the field making sure we get the narrative right making sure we get the narrative right Mm -hmm. and down to the population in a understandable Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. what we don't do very well in public health is give out information that the rest of the population can understand Mm -hmm. so instead we have a lot of still fear and misunderstanding and what our public health workforce has really learned is how to craft better succinct messaging mm-hmm. that's crystal clear clean and read at the readability or understandability of the population you're working with so we have to bring it to meet the population where they're at with it and
0: and it's so important cross culturally too yep because what one message can mean to one culture can mean something completely different to another culture. Absolutely. It's so incredibly important.
1: It's been fascinating to learn that and watch that. And we will continue to need to stay vigilant about that in with the vaccine messaging. And um, because right now, of course, we have just as many people who are very scared about the vaccine, who are very worried that it was sped up and that they circumvented processes. And so we have a whole population that's very fearful of those things because of previous vaccine information or knowledge. And vaccines is a very complicated, um, very politicized issue in our public health work anyway. And now you add it on top of the pandemic. Um, So we have to be very educated about it. And, And right now I will say not everyone needs to be vaccinated nor does everyone um nor should even if they need to be should they be because of complicated underlying issues that a person has and um the the webinars and trainings that I have been doing the last 2 weeks about vaccines um out of a couple of different uh universities on the east coast and um the CDC and one of the big things that we've been messaging is that um Right now, there are certain parts of the population that we—it it is questionable about lactating. Um, you know, at first they said no women who are lactating mm-hmm. should take the vaccine right away. And right. now the second version, we're saying, okay, actually, this looks to be safer and we should be thinking about that. But um, we're, we want to wait and see a little bit, or we're thinking about how does a vaccine work in a person under 16 versus Mm -hmm. a person over 16, a person over 60 versus a person. And so even the vaccine experts and the um, public health experts on that have said, um, we don't have to vaccinate every single person. Not every person that wants it probably is um, the best candidate for it because maybe they have underlying health issues that are really not uh, great for them to be taking the vaccine right now. And so getting it into the hands of the people that um, need it and then helping, helping people make the best decision for themselves and their family is the thing that we have to do. And so I, I was really excited to hear some really key leaders in our field, um, in other fields in medicine. um, This is the New York uh, uh, Medical College, um, really good information about how they're educating physicians, how they're educating pediatricians about it. Um, And, you know, and then just making sure that we get that information out to the masses Mm -hmm. and to the public and, and not scaring people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, the messaging, it's so important, Mm -hmm. right? Do you believe that we will be able to reach herd immunity by the end of 2021?
1: Mm -hmm. I do. And with our continuing our practices, with continuing our um, our vigilance of surveillance of the of the um, of the virus. Mm -hmm. And then every every month we're going to see the betterment of these of the vaccines and the quality and the durability. And even from the Pfizer to the Moderna, the stability Mm -hmm. of the vaccine has been so much better understood. And so. And this is the thing I think that is the most frustrating part for our non-science believing humans out there is that that is the scientific process. Everything takes rigor and the scientific process when done right and well does take time. That's called history and maturation of of understanding how things work in a body and understanding how science and how our bodies adapt and adaptogenics. And Mm -hmm. so I, I am such a nerd that way too. And I know you are as well. We both appreciate that scientific methodology and rigor. Um, And then at some point having trust in the process. And so I do have a lot of faith and a lot of hope that um, even in six months, I feel like we're going to be walking around the earth in a much um, healthier manner. I feel even in the next three months, Um, communities are going to be figuring out how to um, maybe adapt and reopen schools that have not been open since um, March for second semester, college campuses, um, um, businesses that will be able to figure out how to uh, continue to adapt. And I think with um, leadership shifts um, in our states and in our nation, I think we're going to see that restored hope and faith in those scientific practices. and, And opening up to going back to being human with each other again and recognizing that this virus didn't really care about your politics or your religion or that we are at the, at the core, we're human. And for our survival purposes, we have to have hope and joy back in 2021. Um, Otherwise people are going to continue to really, move into that deep, deep state of compassion. I mean, further than we already are. And so I think, um, so many of us are so hopeful and we've seen already the, the shifts in other countries and how they've been able to um, adapt and, and really, um, because, and the thing of it is with this is this won't be the last virus. No, this won't be the last, um, uh, you know, mutation of this virus. It will, it will, there will always be something. So it's more about how we adapt as a culture, communities, and individuals in those spaces um, that we come out of this. And by six months from now to a year from now, I think it's going to look really hopeful. And really, people will have adapted, um, but also readapted to. Yeah, maybe we didn't need to live a life so um, bloated and full of things that didn't really matter. And it helps us streamline in organizations, communities, and families of like, well, what does really matter after two years of this? And we get back to a sense of um, what really matters joy, Absolutely. hope,
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, humans, healthy. individuals, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. I could talk to you all day, Dr. I I respect your time time too. And I feel like that is a perfect note to end on hope and really focusing on what matters and also just gratitude after all this. I know, Oh my goodness. When I go back out to eat with a group of girlfriends, are you kidding me? When I come back to lacrosse too, we're going to go out to eat and we're going to go out for a glass of wine. And oh my goodness, I don't think I will ever take that for granted ever again.
1: People won't, kids won't. I mean, when I think about kids getting to go back to their sport that they maybe thought, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll rethink, well, did I really like that sport or did I really, Mm -hmm. or what sport did I, you know, kids that I think about families that overpack schedules and I think maybe they'll rethink what what's what really goes back in that schedule um workplaces what are the I call um if you follow um like the uh good to great um book um Mm -hmm. I'm uh, the name of Jim Collins the hedgehog what is our hedgehog what are the things that really matter what is the thing we want to zone in on in our family in our community in our Corporate spaces, and in our states, and in our nation, and then it helps us kind of think, yeah, maybe some of that other stuff didn't really matter, um, that we thought mattered, and these are the things that really matter: human, human life, um, you know, giving, giving back, uh, you know, finding joy. It's finding getting joy.
0: back to the basics. Yep. And then doing the basics well.
1: Right? And doing them well. And giving people their lives back in a way that they feel fulfilled. And and then, it, you know, shifting our healthcare back to, oh, yeah, everyone needs access to healthcare. Oh, yeah, everyone needs access to mental health. Like,
0: I need to clap for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, oh. Thank you so much for being here. You're today. welcome. Your insights, your wisdom is just so greatly appreciated. And I know all our listeners love listening to you as well, as I've gotten many messages about it. We are at awesome. almost 9,000 strong listeners on She Leads Her Life. So that oh is just gosh. so exciting that that Good. many people will be listening to what you have to say, Dr. Reese. And thank you for being such a light in my life as well. Where can people find you.
1: you? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, you can find me at KeelyReese.com um that's where you that's by my website and then you can contact me through there um and so that's probably the easiest space i'm or you can look me up at the university um of wisconsin lacrosse and easily find us on our homepage there um but happy to reach out and connect with others that are wanting to do this work or how we've done this work in some of these other spaces and just even share what we've done i'm happy to share and um you know, if it can help one person, one organization, one school, uh, that's, that's what this is about and how we can and bring that, shed that light to others as well. So absolutely.
0: Thank you again for being here.
1: Thanks for having me and take care.